I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode 28. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. Typically, I try not to harp too much on the actual process of making this show because when you watch a film, you're never really thinking about the fact that it takes 700 takes and several different edits on a cutting room piecing together all of these disparate parts to make something beautiful and then recoloring it and rendering it and mastering it and marketing it and for such a small production as Ask Viv it wouldn't seem like it would be this gargantuan task because it's really just me at a microphone but this particular episode I wanted to talk about the process of the show because I recorded and edited a full episode 28. It was called Up in Arms and I literally recorded it back in June and I wanted to say something about struggle, whether it be financial or political or the usual emotional, personal struggles that we're all facing. It seemed like everyone was going through such a hard time and I think that I put this immense pressure on myself to say something about that. But the truth is a majority of this year and the last year of my life, which I've been thinking about so much because I'm coming up on my birthday in a month has been about learning how to struggle and something that I learn more and more and becomes truer and truer as I age is how difficult it is to teach someone something as you're learning it and to pass on wisdom that you haven't fully accepted or solidified in your own being and for me who every time I get a revelation I want to immediately pass it on and I want to say no I found the answer to this and this will make it a little bit easier but something as hard as learning how to gracefully have a hard time is something that's taken me months and months and months and I'm just now on the cusp of being able to articulate in a real fashion, struggling to learn how to struggle, I began this conversation, this constant battle that we're in. And I thought I had to begin with the fact that I spent my entire life and was raised in a way to desire an easy way out. I didn't want to go through a hard time ever. I was averse to struggle and I remember when I was in high school, constantly telling myself, find a way out, just find a way out. A lot of the crux of my hard work and my efforts as an adolescent was to say, if you do this now, you won't have to struggle later. And that kind of mindset is something that a lot of working class, a lot of poor kids were told it's an immigrant story. It's an underdog story. It's work your ass off, shoulder to the grind, do what you have to do, and later, there will not be a struggle. And that worked for me. I would be working two jobs, I'd be going to school, I'd be getting A's on my test, I'd be saving up money. And then I said, okay, you get to Columbia and that's the end of it. And I remember viewing Columbia, this ivory tower that was such a an imaginative machination in my mind because I don't know if I've ever told you all, but I didn't visit Columbia until I got into Columbia. So this whole time, it was this very amorphous, 
this imagination, this vision that I had that was going to be my freedom from hardship. I get to Columbia, life becomes a different kind of difficult because, okay, now it's not about where are you going to get your next meal, where are you going to lay your head, but it's about self-management. I had no clue what proper nutrition looked like because when you grow up in a place with food scarcity, you don't understand proper nutrition. I didn't know how to manage my own body. I didn't know how to manage relationships or to move around the world. I didn't know anything about saving money. And so a different kind of hardship and difficulty was presented to me. At this point, still imagining 19, 20, 21 years old, still looking for a way out of it. 18, 19 comes, someone presents me the opportunity to work on Wall Street. Did I have any background in financial accounting? No. Did I have any real interest in market or economics? No, not really. But what I saw was dollar, dollar, dollar sign, there's a way out of a struggle. That comes, I'm making more money than I ever had at one time. My health starts failing. I'm stressed out of my mind. I'm waking up at 3 and 4 a.m. to ride the train to work before the markets open. I'm working until 1, 2 a.m. I'm experiencing all kinds of discrimination, racism, sexism in the workplace. Again, mismanaging my nutrition, stressed out of my mind, and I'm presented with a different kind of hardship, though it wasn't financial. I'm a writer, I'm an artist, this is not who I am. And I say this all to say, I spent so much of my early adult life looking for a way out of struggle. Okay, the times comes and they say, we're gonna publish you and we're going to put your work on this pedestal and you get literal millions of readers from around the world. You get thousands of people flooding your inbox with commentary and praise and critique. And you're thinking, okay, this is gonna be the thing that changes everything. This is gonna be the thing that frees me from struggle. Then you get a man, dream boys. You get these gainfully employed, beautiful, gorgeous, talented, charismatic, charming, wealthy men at my doorstep telling me, I enter your life and I change everything. And in my naivete, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, I'm believing you walk into my life, you're going to change everything for the better. And I thought that a man could do that. And I, I believed that a man could do that because part of the ethos of my childhood, the women that I was raised around, in many ways portrayed that a man could come and unlock the key to your future and open that door and it was going to be nothing but comfort, sustainability, abundance, excess, and luxury. And I bought into that fantasy and I said, okay, this is the key. And it wasn't like these things were happening unilaterally. It was all these things happening at one time because I was always looking for a way out of having a hard time. Fast forward to this year, the world's caving in. All of the successes that I had built are now stalled. There's no stage. I'm a stage-oriented person. I spend most of my time preparing to be on a stage, to take a stage, to speak on a stage with this stride of just keep going, keep going, keep going. A pandemic happens. A depression happens. My entire industry is shut down. Nobody cares what's happening in culture and society, really, because nobody knows. And all of a sudden, what I'm confronted with is a hard time. And there is no easy way out of this kind of hard time. For years, I looked at my life as God's joke 
to give someone so much ability and know-how and can-do and beauty and talent, everything happened the hard way. I mean, you all see easy street because that's the presentation of life. It's always going to be the hardest things are the hardest things. The easiest things appear to be the easiest things. But for me, experiencing it, it was like everything is hard. I spent, I spent too much time on the question of why me? And that was the first thing I had to learn about struggle was one, I didn't want to struggle. I had an aversion to struggle because of an ethos or a lifestyle that I was taught to want. One, that was freedom from struggle. Two, I had to get rid of the question of why me? I see so clearly now that I've struggled because I am expected to take a position at the forefront, a position in which I am responsible for others. And someone who is responsible for others has got to know how to struggle, how to endure while also living. Not living to endure, but really enduring and also learning how to live well. Because I'm supposed to pass on this wisdom. I'm gonna learn what it means to make a bunch of money and go dead broke. And I'm gonna have something to say about financial security. I'm going to fall in love with the absolute wrong kind of person who's going to lead me astray pretty much several times in my life and learn what love is and love is not. I'm going to attempt to create a real independently structured and lucrative career without being mismanaged or beholden to any kind of corporation before the age of 25. And I'm going to tell people what it means to be self-fulfilled. And all of it is a struggle. Wholeness is a struggle. Wealth is a struggle. Poverty is a struggle. Love is a struggle. Lovelessness is such a struggle. Family is a struggle. Solitude is a struggle. Political independence and freedom is a struggle. Carceral imprisonment and bondage is a struggle. What I've learned this summer that there were some struggles that were God ordained, that were hand to me to say, out of this struggle, you will craft a life and a legacy. And there were other struggles that I chose, self-imposed struggles. And so the third thing that I learned about struggling is that if you're going to struggle, choose the worthy struggle. Choose the struggles that lend to something new and something better and something stronger. And when I say that, I mean, don't make an enemy of yourself. If the enemy's gonna be the landlord, if the enemy's going to be the police, if the enemy's going to be the boss at work, if the enemy is going to be the oppressive relationship, if there's gonna be 7,000 things coming at you, challenging your sense of wholeness, challenging your joy, challenging your success, why make an enemy of yourself? And I realized the ways in which I made an enemy of myself self-deprecation, belittlement, constantly engaging in thoughts of low self-esteem, beating myself up because of failures that were completely out of my control, spending much too long on failure and not immediately attempting recovery, building a narrative about myself and my life and the things that I did or did not deserve, engaging in romances and friendships that were leeching and draining. Imagine being in the middle of a war and all of a sudden while everyone is shooting at you, you turn your gun on yourself. That is the equivalent of what many of us 
especially young people, people coming of age, we've done is not only do we battle a pandemic and a recession, a lack of stability on every single institutional level of society that exists. Don't just even battle spiritual wickedness in high and low places, but we turn around and we make an enemy of ourselves through all of the ways in which we show self-hate and distrust and self-doubt. And then we let anxiety in and then we, we belittle our own expectation through depression. And all of these ways, we literally create a war in our mind and we wonder why we go outside and feel daunted in the world. You're wearing gloves and a mask every time you walk into a grocery store, but then you come inside to the fortress of your own home and you still feel at war or you still feel tired. We can't sleep, we have no rest, we're dependent on all kinds of psychological crutches, all kinds of vices, and we have so many different kinds of loneliness because we don't even see ourselves as good company. I stopped distrusting myself so much. I said, you know what? You have built something special here. And I'm not talking about my career or the things that I've done for other people. I looked in the mirror and I say, you've built something good here, something special here. I've learned to honor my body and put healthy things in my body. I've learned to honor my space and only bring truly caring and loving people into my space and into my life. I've learned to honor my mind. I'm constantly reading things that are fortifying my mind. I've learned to forgive myself for the transgressions that I've made against my own soul. And I've learned to stop warring with myself. I was on such a path for so long of self-destruction so that anything you all saw that was good that was happening to me or any strides I was making, that was God and God alone. It was just the mistakes that were mine. And I all of a sudden had this epiphany this summer of, okay, the world is going to be pretty much against you. And that's just not as a black person and as a woman and as a young person, but that's just the the nature of this earthly realm, worldly Babylon shit is the world's going to be pretty much against you. Are you going to be for yourself? Am I going to be my own self-advocate? Am I going to be my own cheerleader? Am I going to be someone who can honestly say I love me and not love me for what I produce or what I construct in the world, but just love me for who I really am? Because that is for so long when I thought of what the easy way out would be. I said it would be so easy if everyone could just see you for who you are. That was really what I wanted when I wanted the end of struggle. I said, if the world could just see how talented and special and buoyant and see me in the light of my ideal and love me profusely, then that would be the way out of this struggle. And it's funny because I was right and yet I was so wrong. The world sees self-love and sees someone being love profusely and it is the nature of the world to defile that the exchange of love among people among mother to child among brother to brother kin in the world co-worker to co-worker any kind of real exchange of love is to the detriment of the world so when you get into the world it challenges and defiles that love but i was right 
in that if I could project that kind of love onto myself, if I could create a sense of ease in my own life, in my own household, if I could take away the complications and tell the truth to myself, which we're always trying to do on this show, and tell the truth about the things that I had been through while also creating a life that was more than just endurance and struggle and really thinking about the creation of abundance and joy and fun and political freedom and liberation, wholeness. If I could just project these things onto myself, if I could just stop making an enemy of myself, then maybe that would be the end of the most important struggle, which was this internal jihad that had been making it so hard to live for such a long time. And I decided, I made a decision at a point that if I could meditate every day and make healthy choices for my life and for my mind and for my heart, and I could make an easier struggle of the one that was happening in my mind and in my heart that had been going on since I had a sense of consciousness. This, am I worthy of love? What do people love when they love me? Who am I when I walk out into the world? If I could just stop making an enemy of myself in that struggle, then maybe when the world hit me with a depression pandemic combo, maybe when I go out into the world and someone tries to take advantage of my good nature and my easygoing spirit and my caring and my love and maybe someone tried to play me for a fool, then maybe it would be so much easier to struggle in the world if I wasn't sitting here beating up on myself all the damn time. And it's been putting those memories, projecting that struggle, taking it out of my mind and off of my heart and putting it into some words putting it into some songs, some lyrics, putting it into some movements, putting it into some good and real conversations with the people that are attempting to love me in my life, putting it down, getting it out of myself for the last three months, that's been what's brought me to today. Learning how to struggle and learning now to desire the struggle on the outside. I've seen so clearly that the only way I'm going to get where I'm going is a struggle. That the world is going to be constantly presenting me with so many different questions and so many different kinds of fights and so many different complications. And rather than looking for the end of struggle, because I've seen now so clearly in spiritual reading especially, that the end of struggle is death. The end of struggle is not peace. Peace is the tool that you use to fortify yourself in struggle, but the end of struggle itself is death. That's what Buddhism will tell you, Islam will tell you, Christianity, Judaism, the end of struggle is the end. It's the end of holy war, it's where the wicked cease from troubling. And so for me to have desired that at any point was for me to desire death. I've wanted it all to be over. And now as a woman, I see I'm not a child and I don't wanna be sheltered from struggle either because sheltering from struggle means that someone else is in control of my life. There are plenty of positions, especially for women and especially for black people where you can say, you know what, you take over. I'll leave the hard questions up to you. I'll give you my money and you can decide where it goes. And that's a life of bondage. And so if I don't want death, 
and I don't want bondage, and I really want to aim for personal freedom and fulfillment and happiness, then I'm gonna not only learn to struggle, but I'm going to learn to want the struggle. As an artist, I'm gonna put forth complicated, complex ideas. I'm writing a book now, and I'm going to hand that book over to someone, and I'm gonna say, don't ruin this. <laughs> Present this in all of its complexity, all of its confundity and obfuscation presented exactly as it is, as complicated as it is, intact. That's a struggle. To produce the kind of level of work I wanna produce in television production, in writing a movie, in making a book, in creating a family, in anything that I aspire to do with my adult life, to ask for it to be easy while also asking for it to be good. I see now the naivete that was rooted in that. And I see it taking place on the world stage because politicians now, what they're trying to do after they royally fucked up everything, I mean everything, Democrats, liberals, leftists, Republicans, conservatives, right-wingers, I mean everyone in want of attention and power and prestige has just royally fucked up everything from the guttermost to the uttermost. And they're now trying foolishly to sell us an easy solution. And the minute that we in our personal lives understand that anything worth obtaining both individually and holistically as a group is going to be a struggle, the more we can tell ourselves the truth about the real cost it's going to take to obtain the things that we want to see manifested in our reality. And it was the lie of Easy Street that made this pandemic so much harder to face because every single thing that we had sworn would last forever didn't last half that. And the things that we built to sustain themselves, we built on an, on easy living. This, I, this notion of influence, notion of ideas of beauty and performance, what we thought activism was. Self-care is revolutionary. No, revolutionaries are revolutionary. And now we really need some real revolutionaries and nobody wants to struggle because everyone convinced themselves that just being a black woman is a radical act. No, it turns out we really need radical acts now. I say this all to say that the more that I embrace the reality of struggle and the beauty of struggle and that it's how we earn our legacies and how we earn our place in the hereafter and how we become lovers, real lovers. When we say things like till death do us part or when we say things like if you need anything you can call on me, we say these things because we know it's a struggle and we don't ask for permission from this to leave the struggle. We don't ask to sit the war out, but we find a way to fortify ourselves. And once we spend that four months really thinking about it, we find a way to reach outward and to stretch our hands and say, my brother, my sister, it's gonna be hard, so call on me. And that was the place that I was really trying to reach where I could say without fear, it's going to be hard, I know it's going to be hard. So if you need anything, call on me. And that's where I'm at today. And it's a lovely place to be. Now let's get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, how do you reconcile believing in prison abolition and also wanting justice for all the cops who have wrongfully murdered black people? I want to see them in jail, but I also don't believe prison should exist. 
What do you think justice would look like in a society with no prisons? I've never associated prison sentences with this notion of justice. And to be quite honest, the more religious I get, the more the concept of justice becomes extremely useless. People often think of radical Islam and they think of the concept of an eye for an eye. Thief gets their hands cut off. And when you look at the Quran and the concept of justice, it always says, you see your enemy somewhere and they've threatened your life, then no holds bar strike them dead. But if they repent, if they ask for mercy and admit wrongdoing, then you absolutely have to relent. And so at all times in our faith, mercy takes precedence over justice. So that's just from a very spiritual standpoint, me wanting to see people locked up in cages ad infinitum in perpetuity for the rest of their life, thinking that that's the equivalent of taking a life. It's not the same to me. So it doesn't give me any sense of peace or calmness. I never saw a cop go away for shooting a black person and thought America's better off now. So I think that part of it is that really thinking about the ways in which we have intuited and absorbed a carceral mindset of let's see punishment. We just want punishment. And the reason why, not even just from a spiritual, but from a logistical, standpoint this makes no sense is that they use the justice system which is inherently racist and fundamentally broken to assuage people into thinking if you see this cop go to jail they want people to exhibit a level of satisfaction to say okay well that's fair because anybody else that murders goes to jail it doesn't fundamentally change the system it doesn't one cop going to jail 70 cops going to jail they enter a jail system which was built to house black and brown people to make them politically neutralized, take away their humanity, to violate their dignity, to defile any sense of wholeness that they could bring to their community, to cripple their communities economically, and throwing in one or two white, black, brown, Asian cops in the mix does not fundamentally change the fact that prisons are built for structural and systemic purposes that is not just to house the bad guys. Let's be smarter about that. When I think of my enemies, and I mean my real true enemies, I'm not talking about such and such down the street that I had beef with in the eighth grade. I'm not talking about haters. I'm talking about enemies, like my real true, they'd like to see me suffer and perish. They'd like to make sure that my children and my grandchildren see no freedom. Hatreds to last a lifetime and then some, their great-grandparents hated my great-grandparents. We can't get along enemies. Capital C-O-P-S, cops. I'd like to see them dead. I'd like to see them dead. I had a poem that I wrote, and in the poem I say, I wanna see all your good things upon the floor, joining all good things with mine. Because any notion I have of justice, of equal suffering, in reference to death, results in death. I would like to see more dead cops. I don't want justice, the notion that's formulated out of white notions of legality, executed through the hands of white or white adjacent legalists, passed down 
or put upon someone who fundamentally has no recognizable legal standing, being that most of them are poor and therefore invisible to the system at best and an enemy of the system at worst, and then black or brown, and so completely not even allowed any type of personhood, to process through that system and have whatever at the fundamental end is called justice, that's a, that's a joke to me. That's a joke to me. Seeing the end of prisons is a glorious end to that joke of a system which purports itself in any way to be fair or even fixable. To stop the joke, to stop the joke, to even stop pretending like there is a worthy struggle present in the existence of our current justice system. To act like it can be reworked, no. The unconditional end of prisons as they were ever conceived of and the unconditional end of policing as it exists because something that is fashioned to oppose your existence, there is no reconciliation of good and evil. There's no middle ground when it comes to it. And cops were fashioned out of evil purposes for evil means to protect a system that is hell bent and propped up upon evil and a lack of righteousness at every turn, no matter what the identity of the person that bears the badge. And I wanna see them dead. And if they're not dead, and if that's not the option, if we can't see all their good things on the floor joining all good things of ours, then we have to work day and night, fight tooth and nail to make sure that that system that is so fundamentally corrupted does not exist anymore. And the thing about being anti-incarceration, it's always about finding a better way. It's knowing that restitution and repentance is a struggle in itself. There's no easy way to make peace and there's no easy way to make war. And I think that so much of carceration is a cop-out. So much of carceration is a cop-out from doing real restitution work. So much of wanting to see homeless people in prison and mentally ill people in prison and abusers in prison and the so much of it is not wanting to deal with the struggle of what it really takes to mend a broken society and people that maintain that desire it's because they are no offense lazy because it's harder to grapple what it would really mean to fundamentally improve the lot of every single person living in this nation than it is to just wish away everyone who does us harm but the thing is Wishing doesn't do that. And you can wish that every cop that kills a black person is going to jail, but that's not going to do anything. When I think of what justice would look like in a society with no prisons, a society with no prisons is a society in which mercy is possible. I want those who bring harm to the weak and who prey on the downtrodden and who abuse positions of power and who enact violence on the harmless and the hopeless to die. But not as much as I want all of us to find a better way to live. Dear Viv, I feel so exhausted. I fought so hard back in 2013 in the heyday of Black Lives Matter. I've since learned a lot and healed a lot. Is it okay that I'm calm when so many are angry because I was angry when so many were calm? Is it okay that I'm sitting this out because I know what comes after? 
I know that there's going to be broken minds and bodies and souls and hearts, and that black women are going to have to tend to them. Is it okay to sit this one out as I prepare myself to provide that care? I feel guilty. It was a struggle for me for years to think if the world is changing, if we're moving towards a new black liberation movement, where would I be in that struggle? I'm not an identity politician. I'm not an activist, career or otherwise. I am extremely cerebral and yet I'm not a theorist. And I'm a leader, but I'm not a front lines leader. And for me, so much of that question and that struggle of figuring out my place was deciding what really is the best use of my ability. And I really came to this question at the beginning of the summer because I thought about what it meant for so many people to be at home desiring to articulate their sense of frustration with the world now more than ever. And I thought to myself, I'm a writer. If I'm a writer, and I really take seriously the fact that I'm a writer or have some kind of talent in written language, then I should be imparting that at any given moment onto somebody else. And so that's when I started this literature book club for some incarcerated men up in Loretto in Pennsylvania and started really writing letters and asking intricate kind of questions about written language to these men who were incarcerated. And in doing that, when I began to do that, it wasn't me being like, how are you? How are things from the other side? But really, what do you think about your life? What do you think about your condition? What do you think about who you are, about manhood? Pretty much trying to engage with these men on a level of you're in bondage, but you're still alive. How do you feel about being alive? Because I feel like if the purpose of carceral systems police systems are to either outright kill black people or to make black people feel dead and neutralized, emasculated, dehumanized before they're actually dead. How can I subvert that system through the powers that I have? And written language for me as a child, the fantasy and possibility that it creates, the self-articulation and release that comes from being able to say, I know, I am, I think, I will. Understanding other people's perspective, the community and love that engages with that, I wanted that for these men. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I said, how can I do that for similar people in my position, young women who are also engaging with, I have this capability to be a writer. I want to be able to articulate myself through the personal essay genre. I really just want to be able to say, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. This is what I think in a way that's personally and intellectually challenging. And that's when I created my house that Vivian built, Writer's Workshop, was something that for me, I knew it would be revolutionary in a way that I could actually say, this is groundbreaking, this is revolutionary, and it not be a cliche, and I didn't pass the buck off to someone else, or can I be excused? Can I not participate? Everyone has to do something. There's two things we have to stop doing. We have to stop conceiving of everything as revolutionary. Oh, self-care is revolutionary. Oh, living your life as a black woman and being happy is revolutionary. Because these are things that actually We can live in excess, we can be selfish and materialistic and base and banal and malicious and none of those things are revolutionary and they can make you perfectly happy. And we also have to stop confining revolutionary to this 1970s idea 
of the Huey Newtons of the world and the Angela Davises of the world of putting our bodies on the front lines to be subject to harm and that be the only thing that is considered a revolutionary act when people often forget there have been anti-colonial movements around the world. Even looking at the anti-apartheid movement is always so fascinating because you had these people that were doing theater and they were writing these, they were doing these traveling plays that were talking about what revolution looked like and what freedom looked like for the black South African and they were educating the populace. During the 1970s, the Black Panther Party had so many publications and newspaper. You had propaganda art. I mean, gorgeous propaganda art that was anti-policing and anti-incarceration and anti-politician. They would go after certain politicians and be like, this person's gonna shut off your water or this person is owned by the phone company. And these were revolutionary acts coming from all of these people who were not looking to own the name of activists, but they were really looking to use their talents in best use. When you consider what your real talent is, that is your place in the struggle. For me, it'll always be the place of a writer. And some people, they're more maternal. Some people are quieter. Some people are artists. Some people are dancers. Some people really are frontline military people. And I actively do wish that instead of turning that anger and aggressiveness outward to their fellow brother or to themselves or to their girlfriends, a lot of these young black men would take some of that militant aggression and put it on the front lines where it's most needed. But everyone has to decide that for themselves. But no, you, you don't have permission to sit that struggle out. You don't. And understand that your position in the struggle is going to change because what an older person can do is not going to be the same as what a younger person can do. And it's not to say that anyone should be excused. I remember there was a really controversial act that Martin Luther King Jr. did where he took young children and put them on the front lines of a march. And it was, it was the children's march. And people were like, he's crazy. They're gonna hose down these children. And he was like, it's going to be an international statement that these American governmental systems are actively at war with their own youth. But that meant for him, he understood that there's something that children can do there's a statement that children can make that older people can't make. There's something revolutionary, something tender about innocence, about being a child at the forefront of a radical movement. And there's something about being an elder and the wisdom that it a lot. And because we have such an intergenerational and gender disconnect, so many kind of disconnects in our community, it becomes so overwhelming and so exhaustive, the thought of participating in any kind of liberation movement that we're then exhausted and therefore politically neutralized again. And we look at the sensationalism of these massive white owned publications that are saying, look at all these protesters being arrested or looking at these protesters being gunned down or now the troops are coming in. And it's supposed to create a sensationalism and fear that makes you think, one, that's the only radical movement going on is the one that's in the streets. And that movement is to no real fruitful end, violence. It's just rioting and looting. And all of those are lies. But the truth is we all have a place in the struggle. We all have a desire and a dream and a vision 
that even now white people and other people of color are participating in that black liberation dream, which should be welcomed. And they should be on the front lines with their bodies and their time and their energy and their money. But it's a dream that if we all really think, what am I good at? What is special about me? What can I do to reach forth to someone else, to help people, to do more than just narrativize and talk about it and repost what can i really do beyond just the gofundmes of the world to participate in history and it engenders a sense of creativity that i think that people should welcome because that creativity does create joy it was hard and exhausting this book club this writing workshop are they were hard ass work but it was time that the minute that i was doing it i could see that it was creating an immediate impact and that's what i wanted so much and that immediate impact was energizing me it wasn't draining me And that's the thing about doing what you're actually called to do and being purposeful is that at the end of the day, even if it'll be physically or mentally exhausting, it'll be spiritually fortifying and spiritually renewing because you say, I see that what I do, not to be on some 90s Rainbow Nation shit, but it makes a difference. It actually makes a substantial difference. I can do it. I must do it, I will do it, and it will make a difference. And if more people adapted that mindset in the struggles that they participate in, we would have a lot more politically active black populace. The young people have convinced themselves that they're drained and exhausted and tired, and that all work towards liberation is futile, And older people have convinced themselves that they've already done the work, even though most of them were bystanders in the 60s, 70s, and 80s themselves. It's not a lie I'm willing to tell myself, and it's not something I can tell you either. Dear Viv, my ex-boyfriend has moved on and found a new girl. She's white. Looks nothing like me. I don't know if he's doing this out of vengeance, but it really hurts. Should I do the same and find someone as a quick fix too? Of all the things that I've learned over so much time about the trouble with looking for the easy way out, there's no place that it's better illustrated than in love. There's that old adage, the best way to get over someone is to get under someone new. And I'm learning now real time in my life how much of a lie that is. And I think the first thing when we talk about not making an enemy of ourselves, is when things go wrong in love, beyond the necessary self-reflection of our own shortcomings and the hurt that they might cause others, to stop convincing ourselves that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, or there could be something fundamentally different about us that would have kept someone around. I think that our mothers did us this disservice a generation of black women who watching films like Waiting to Exhale and Stella's Got Her Groove Back convinced us this thing about black men replacing us with white women. It's one of those painful myths that sustained. And the reason why it's a myth that makes no sense is that if if a black man wants a white woman, wants a white woman to do whatever it is a white woman does and look like a white woman and move like a white woman, then that man doesn't want anything really to do with me. And I, I can tell you that because white women and black women are so fundamentally different. And it's not a qualitative assessment. 
to say black women are better than white women. There are white women of quality. There are white women of no quality. There are black women of quality. There are black women of very little quality. It's to say that the difference culturally and the difference phenotypically, the differences are so profound in so many ways that to think that you can just replace one with another and to feed into the myth of replacement is to make an enemy of yourself because you then desire to be something that you are fundamentally not. If a black man wants a Chinese woman who speaks Mandarin, who cooks Chinese food, who can tell you stories about the old country, they have no business with me. We have got to stop convincing ourselves that there's something wrong with us when things fall apart. Because one, the older you get, the more you will learn about the capital C word compatibility. Everyone that we try to mesh with, we sometimes, it's revealed over time that we're not compatible. You like this and I like that. You wanna spend your free time doing this. And I now have a desire that everyone I've ever loved, I want to see them with someone that they're compatible with. Just because you're attracted to somebody and care for somebody and like somebody does not mean that you are supposed to spend a substantial amount of your life with them and wanting better for that person is a way that we create a sense of ease in the inevitable struggle that love engenders. Wanting the best for our partners. Maybe what is best for this man that you loved is this white girl. Shocker. I was in love for a long time with a Puerto Rican man who was older than me, who was a stoner who would spend $70,000 on food, but $0 on luxury goods. And I loved him to no end, and I loved his family, and we had a great time together, and we lived together. We could not build a life together. And so what I wanted, rather than to see him punished for not being everything I needed him to be, or me not being everything that he needed me to be, was I wanted to see him with someone who could fulfill his desires and be compatible and go where he wanted and wanted the same things in life that he wanted. Because that's the real struggle of love, is to be able to want good things for people even if that good thing is not you. And it's also to say, I can't be everything that everyone needs me to be, even those that I've loved. And to say that the war that it sometimes is, that it almost always is, is a worthy struggle every time. Because I hope that I can say that me loving this person made him a better man for the woman that he will God willing love for an entire lifetime. That's a real hope and it's not pretense. It's really learning to want the best for people and want the best in love. And it's a real, real hard grown woman thing to do. It's not any kind of little kid stuff to look at somebody love someone else and say, good, I'm glad. This is not kids business. That's grown woman business. Vengeance is perhaps the most fruitless struggle that there is. It goes back to the concept of, of carceral, our carceral nature, of wanting to see people punished, of wanting to see people in pain. When we replace our want of vengeance with our want for mercy. The best thing I ever did for my own heartbreak was to want better 
for the person that broke it. Because when I said, I want you to be happy and I want you to be whole and I want you to be loved and living, it's because I recognized that, and it was a hard recognition that came over a long time. This is not someone who ventured out to break my heart. This is not some evil villain, Mojo Jojo type figure who walked out and said, I want to hurt this person. This was someone who was lacking in love or comfort or nourishment. Someone who was neglected or bitter or emotionally stunted in some way. And that hurt was passed on in the form of their negligence or their irresponsibility with my emotions. And to say, I want better for you, I want healing for you, meant that I wanted to erase the source of my own pain by recognizing it for what it clearly was. And vengeance does not erase the source of pain. It merely creates more pain. And sometimes we convince ourselves that everything is a zero-sum game and an eye for an eye is really what'll do it for everybody. But the truth is nothing works that way. Nothing works that way. Moving towards a mindset of wholeness. We're in a struggle for wholeness. These ideals that something can be won or something can be bested, annihilated, that people can be broken in exchange for the brokenness they cause is a white man's ideal. And it's the idea that there can be no coexistence, that there can be no neutral end to a story to just say this happened and everyone was better off for it and everyone was left a little more tender because things are painful and the painful things leave you tender. To say the struggle did not manifest a marriage, it did not manifest a lifetime love. To say that a child did not manifest a happy and whole home. But there are other things that struggle produces that are not happy endings, that are not always the clear cut stories that were told of victory and glory, but There's useful sorts of pain that we can see clearly when we stop aspiring to a different end. So much of vengeance and so much of these narratives of searching to fix something that happened in the past is to say it could have been different, it should have been different. But what if struggle is about seeing things for what they are? Seeing people for who they are, meeting people for where they're at, and loving them anyway. And it's not easy. And it's not about being right. It's about being righteous. And maybe if you can choose that, the grown woman's battle, instead of wanting to live in the perpetuity of your teenage years, if we stop living in this Marvel superhero film and start seeing things for truly what they are and seeing pain and vengeance and violence for truly what they cost, then maybe we can find a better way to struggle in the way of things like love. That's all the time that we have for today. You know, it's funny because I think that so much of my reluctance towards consistency over the last three years building this podcast, so much of it has been thinking that it would be easier thinking that every single time I came 
to this mic, it would get easy. And it never gets easier. And I'm glad now. I'm glad for that. And I'm walking towards the challenges of art making and an artistic practice so much more boldly and courageously because I'm not fooling myself anymore. And I'm walking towards love and romance and friendship and family in a way that seems so much more grounded because I'm not fooling myself anymore. Things are going to be hard and things are going to be a struggle and it doesn't always mean that they're going to produce pain. Sometimes the production of joy is also extremely difficult. But to see something that lives in my head or lives in my heart either a vision creatively in my mind or convoluted romantic feelings that sit in my soul, to see them come clearly into the world and to see them move and touch somebody else, there's nothing I can think of that's more worthy and that makes me feel more grateful to be alive. I'm finding a better way than the easy way for the very first time in my life. And just admitting that I'm willing to do that feels like I have bested some internal demons and external institutions that have been tricking me into confusion for so long. Because I feel like whether it was men or college or careers, Everyone was trying to convince me that to give up my life was going to be for the betterment of myself. And it's something that can be that dream, that fantasy, that it could all be so easy is so tantalizing. It can't be easy. And perhaps me and some of my enemies, we can't get along. And the socio-political economic state of the world is complex and Byzantine. But it's these simple truths and the inalienable spiritual truths that I found that give me a clarity to say that there are some things that I know that I know that I know that I know. And it's those things that can't be broken. And it's those things that can't be swayed. And it is in those simple truths about God and the knowledge of my own self-worth. Some things are no longer up for discussion. And when you find those simple truths, which I hope you glean even a little bit of wisdom from these minutes that we have together, and you hold fast to them when you step out into a world of perpetual warfare, that the living gets a little easier. I wish you more life and more love. I'm Bianca Vivian, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Starting a war, screaming peace at the same time. All the corruption and justice, the same crimes. Always a problem if we do or don't.